episode 75, Prepare for Battle. Welcome to the History of the Bible. In the last episode, we talked about the miracle that happened for the Israelites to cross over the Jordan River, a river that was flooded and had water flowing well beyond its normal water banks. Whether it was a supernatural barrier that was invisible that blocked the flow of water, or a mudslide that supernaturally coincided with the priest that carried the Ark of the Covenant and them stepping into the waters of the Jordan River. We can finally say that they had made it to the promised land. The last time the people of Israel had been in the promised land was way back when Jacob and his sons left for Egypt during the time that Joseph was in power. It had been a while. All of the wanderings came to an end. What started with Abraham wandering in the land of Canaan to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. It was all over. Although the Israelites had finally made it to the promised land, they were only on the banks of the river or nearby. They hadn't taken possession of any of the land whatsoever. So though the wanderings may have ended, the battles for the land were only just beginning. Often, in ancient times, before people, nations, tribes, or city-states went to wage war, they would seek the favor of the gods by offering some type of sacrifice to earn favor. The Israelites, though, they did things a little bit differently. Instead of trying to earn the favor of God because they already had it, just look at how the Lord got them across the Jordan River. No, instead of seeking the favor of the Lord, they reinstated the sign of the covenant, circumcision. One would think that now that they are in the territory, it was time to go possess the land that had been promised for so long. Yet Joshua did things a little differently. If we go back to look at circumcision and the practice of it for the Israelites, it was a sign of the covenant with the Lord. Now, it wasn't a new thing whatsoever. The Egyptians had been doing it long before the Israelites were. In the 23rd century BC, which were the years 2300 to 2201 BC, tombs showed depictions of men getting circumcised. These tombs also show the use of a flint knife being used. More on that in a second. So the practice of circumcision was not a new thing. However, what was different in the way that the Israelites versus Egyptians was that the Egyptians used circumcision as a means of a rite of passage. Often it was done when the boy transitioned to manhood or it was done before he would get married. But not all people groups did circumcision. Many of these people groups being the ones that lived in the land of Canaan. The way that circumcision was different for the Israelites was that they did the procedure when the boy was only eight days old. And keep in mind that circumcision was a sign of the covenant that the Lord had made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the Israelites. So when the boy was circumcised after eight days of being born, it was a sign that the boy was born into a covenant with the Lord. 
he already had the favor of the Lord upon him. It wasn't anything that he did. The Egyptians did circumcision to earn the right to become a man. The Israelites did it because they already had favor with God, and it was a physical reminder that they already were in covenant with him, not based on the man earning it. This is what Joshua did. He had all the men circumcised, because while wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites were not circumcising their sons. So a whole new generation grew up without the act of circumcision being done on them. Not only did they perform the act of circumcising all of the men, the Israelites would then celebrate the Passover. The Passover was celebrated on the 14th day of the month. The Israelites crossed over the Jordan on the 10th of the month. That means it took about four days for the men to recover from their circumcision. Once recovered, they celebrated the Passover. Now, the Passover was only one day. However, the next day after, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would begin. That means that for a total of 11 days, the Israelites stayed and camped on the west side of the Jordan River, in the Promised Land. There are a couple things about this that should be brought up. First, during the circumcision, and even during the two feasts, the Israelites were in a very vulnerable position. To give an idea, in the book of Genesis, Jacob's daughter is raped by the prince of Shechem. The ruler of the city then asked if Jacob's family and the people of Shechem would be willing to intermarry. However, the sons of Jacob said that they could not do this because the people of Shechem were not circumcised. So the prince and his father, the ruler of the city, were willing to have all the people become circumcised so that they could intermarry. Well, it came about on the third day, when the pain was the worst, two of Jacob's sons came into the city and killed everyone. There weren't any men able to stand up against them. All that to be said is to show that the Israelites were not in a position to defend themselves by having been circumcised. And then on top of that, they celebrated a feast that required the people to do no regular work. So the amount of trust in God to protect them during those 11 days must have been a lot. That or Joshua knew the heart of the Lord. But it also shows that the feast that started the Exodus, Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the very first thing that the Israelites did. They celebrated what the Lord had already done in their lives. They were remembering the victories of the past as they stepped into their new destiny, a future that they had no idea what laid before them. But they were able to look back and celebrate what the Lord had already done in Egypt, because the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were specifically for celebrating the deliverance that the Israelites had received when leaving Egypt. This Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the first time that the Israelites ate food that was gathered from the promised land. That very day that they ate of the fruit of the land, the manna that the Lord had been giving to them, 
no longer appeared for the people because it was no longer needed. Now, it was time for the Israelites to begin looking towards the west in preparation to possess the land that would be given to them. When the Israelites first crossed over the Jordan River, it says in Joshua 5, verse 1, that as soon as the kings on the west side of the river heard about the Jordan River drying up for the Israelites to pass through, their hearts melted. Meaning, the people of the land were completely demoralized. Some translations say that they had no spirit left in them. Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, told the spies that no man was able to stand because of the fear of the Israelites. What's interesting is that the word for stand in the Hebrew language that Rahab uses is the word for erect. Now, some scholars believe that because Rahab's line of work, he was not only talking about the men of the land not being able to stand up with confidence, but rather that the word means what it is talking about. Rahab was finding that the men of the land were not able to get an erection because of the fear of the Israelites was so great. Whether it's true or not that men were not able to get an erection, or that it's just referring to the men not being able to stand in confidence, won't be known. Either way, the fear of the Israelites on the people of the land was heavy. So much so that the Israelites were able to spend 11 days recovering from circumcision and celebrating two feasts without worrying about being attacked. This is one of the ways that the Lord went before the Israelites, by bringing the fear and dread of the Israelites upon the people of the land of Canaan. In those days, it was widespread for the fear of the enemy to be an omen or sign that the enemy would eventually come to victory and battle. One of the reasons that this was the case is because in ancient times, when two people groups would line up for battle, it was believed that those people's gods would come to battle as well. Meaning that not only were the two people groups going to fight each other, but their gods would fight as well. So when the people of the land of Canaan heard about all of the wonders and signs that the Israelites' God was doing for them, they saw a more powerful deity than their own. This meant that when a more powerful deity fought for the enemy, the more powerful deity would win. This, by default, would be the result of that God's people winning the battle. It wasn't that the people of the land of Canaan were afraid of the Israelites. They were afraid of their God because their God moved in power, more power than they had ever seen their gods move. Today, we would often call the Israelites' battles against the people of the land of Canaan as a holy war, because to us, it seems that the Lord, the God of Israel, was waging war against the people and their gods. However, holy wars were not a thing in ancient times because there wasn't any other type of war. When battles were believed to be waged by the people's God, that meant every battle and war was connected to the divine. 
This is not like the holy wars that we would think of today. People groups would not attack other people groups to force conversion or to kill all the infidels or non-believers. Wars were mostly waged to provide and ensure prosperity for the people, which in turn would bring prosperity to their God. This is why they considered all wars and battles to be holy, because they were looking to fight for or defend the prosperity that was being provided to their gods. Battles are seen in ancient times as divine warriors fighting and defeating the deities of the enemy. This could be why the Lord told the Israelites that he was a warrior fighting for them in Exodus 15 verse 3. Because all people groups had a deity fighting for them. It was just a matter of whose God or gods was strongest. This is why so many cults and religions had a god or goddess of war. Because that deity had the responsibility of fighting for or preparing the people for war. So that they could go out and fight against their enemies. In reality. It was seen that wars between different people groups were not about the people wanting to fight, but rather that the gods wanted to fight and defeat each other. Humans were just a means of representing warfare in the physical as the gods wage war in the spiritual. And because of this, armies would often carry their deity's divine standard, banner, or image of some kind that represented their God. This divine standard would march ahead of the army as a sign that the God was making a way for their people. The Israelites did the same thing. Joshua had the Ark of the Covenant go before the people as a sign that the Lord was going before them and leading them in the direction that they should go. Even the command that Joshua gave the Israelites to stay behind the Ark of the Covenant 2,000 cubits was a common thing to do when marching into battle. In ancient times, when the army went out to battle, they would march a measured distance from the king and the banner of their deity in front of the army. But not only was this a sign to the Israelites that the Lord was going before them as the priests carried the Ark, it was also a sign to the people of Canaan that the Israelites' God was going before them in battle. Thus, it created a fear within all the men of Canaan because they were seeing the God of Israel go before them and perform great signs and wonders, things that they did not see their gods doing. This is why the two spies reported back to Joshua in chapter 2, verse 24, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The people feared the coming battles that would be waged against them by the God of the Israelites. Now that the Israelites had come into the promised land, and they had all the males get circumcised, and the feast that looked back and the remembrance of what the Lord had done had been celebrated, now it was time to move forward with the promise of the Lord to take the land. It was also during this time that the manna stopped, 
They were now to eat of the land that had been promised to them for so many years. Where the Israelites camped was believed to be on the outskirts of the territory that belonged to the city of Jericho. As we remember, Jericho was where Joshua sent two spies to check out the city. And this is where Rahab and her family live. We'll go more into the city of Jericho itself in the next episode. But for now, we're at the point where Joshua is preparing for the battle to come. To prepare, Joshua was looking out at the city one day. And when he looked up, he saw a man before him. In Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, it says, When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, it might sound weird to us that the angel of the Lord's army shows up to Joshua. But in ancient times, it was almost expected for a supernatural being to show up. As mentioned, all wars were holy wars during this time. What that meant is that the people groups were fighting what they believed to be a war for their God. So if it was to be a war that was waged for their God, it was also expected that their God would give them some kind of battle plan to use. Many other stories, such as the Korean epic, as well as other documented historical people, kings of Babylon, have claimed to receive a divine plan for the coming battle. Some were through dreams, and others were believed to have come from divine messengers. This is a way that Joshua would receive his message through a divine messenger. However, this messenger acts a little bit differently than most messengers from the Lord. The commander of the Lord's army told Joshua to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. These are the same words that Moses heard back at the burning bush when God first called him to go to Egypt to lead the people out of bondage. It was God who told Moses these words. So when the messenger came to Joshua and said these same words, it brings up the thought that maybe this messenger was not just an angel. The act of removing one's sandals in itself was a sign of respect and humility in ancient times. Even today, Muslims will show this type of respect by removing their sandals before entering a mosque. However, when Joshua did it, it was done out of respect of humility to God, not just a messenger. That is why many scholars believe that this commander of the Lord's army was the Son of God, meaning that this was Jesus before his incarnation as Jesus in the New Testament. Other scholars believe that this isn't Jesus, but rather just an angel and that the call for Joshua to remove his sandals was just a demand for respect. However, angels never receive worship. 
Joshua fell face down to the ground and worshipped, and the commander of the Lord's army received it, and even went a step further by instructing Joshua to remove his sandals. This shows two things. One, that it is more likely that this is Jesus before the New Testament. And two, it confirms Joshua as the leader of the Israelites. When the successor has the same type of encounter with the Lord as his predecessor, it can confirm that the mantle has been passed on from one to the other. It was during this moment that Joshua would receive the instructions for how to conquer their first city in the Promised Land, the city of Jericho. So join us next time in episode 76, The City of Jericho. Until next time, remember that you are loved, special, and worthwhile. Thanks for listening to the History of the Bible. Let's get the word out by liking, rating, and following the show. This episode was produced by Nakeo Productions. To check out other shows, search for Nakeo Productions wherever you listen to podcasts.